0: It's about six hours a day that we Americans are in front of one screen or another. So if you're taking six hours out of your day just to be mindless on the internet, what did you eliminate that was otherwise going to be good for you? I will say that there's a lot of people who think that
1: they have extremely high cortisol because they're stressed all the time. They've actually had cortisol burnout. Then you'll see that they're actually very low on cortisol or they're low on cortisol in the
2: morning and then high in the evening. The control is the hard part because we're constantly fighting what we revert to as a default. You've got to be fighting and constantly thinking, what do I want to achieve? What are you putting energy to and moving emotionally?
3: Is this emotion I'm having really congruent with my dream or is it a habit I'm in? Then you have to look at the movement of your emotions and if it's
4: productive or again, is it destructive to you? But how you deal with those challenges is the expression of who you are at your soul. How you show up in our circumstances is a reflection of the level of development you've come to in your life. I think in the society we live in, we're so disconnected from each other because we're so, as your book will eloquently say, brainwashed into this materialistic consumerism, social media-driven society, and ultimately, people don't really have a choice. Is something you really stated eloquently in your book? It's like you're being manipulated, and and I was just talking about it on a recent podcast. Is like I'm pretty disciplined, I'm pretty mentally strong, but I found myself falling into the loop. Very recently, as well, where I was like, man, I'm I'm mindlessly scrolling. Like, I'm doing things when I shouldn't be. Like, with my kids, I've got my phone in my hand. And it's this idea of like your brain is just getting this little hit of dopamine, this little of reward. And all of a sudden, it's like the Coke addict who just has one little hit and then boom, it's down the spiral. And I'd love to have you just talk about why this topic came up for you because obviously you've been a brain expert for a long time.
0: And uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. I'm delighted. And we'll spend as much time as you want and we'll go anywhere you want. I'm open with that. First of all, talking about
4: where it begins for people, right so we we know, and people I think at, at a at a conscious level maybe know that there's some level of manipulation going on, like you are ultimately being subjected to neuroscience tactics and principles that they know are going to make you compelled to use your phone all the time, but it's been suggested that you know the average person is on their phone four to six hours a day, which is and that 's a social media that 's obscene and I'd just love to talk to you about like where you you started seeing this happening in your life and why you decided to write the book.
0: Let me first say that so it's about six hours a day that we Americans are in front of one screen or another. That might be your phone, it might be your tablet, it might be your computer or television for that matter. But just that statistic should be worrisome because you know, there aren't a lot of hours in the day, especially when you hopefully subtract eight of those hours dedicated to sleep. You've got time for exercise, meditation, preparing your food, eating your food. So, if you're taking six hours out of your day just to be mindless on the internet, just from that perspective alone, wow, what did you eliminate that was otherwise going to be good for you? And I also you know, get back to your question about what was the motivation here? How did all this get started? You'll notice that the book was written with another physician, uh, Austin Perlmutter, MD. Strangely, we have the same last name, but that's our son. What can I say? So, Austin and I were actually in this very room where you and I are talking today. We kicked our feet up. We're, we're just talking about some of the frustration that we have in practicing medicine in that, gosh, we do everything we possibly can to learn as much material, read the journals, go to the meetings, learn everything we can, step one. Step two, then we do our best to transmit that information one-on-one to our patient here's what you need to be doing, why more exercise is going to be better, all the things that we we try to impart. But it's step three that we have the biggest letdown, and that is the follow through, the action doesn't happen. In 50 to 80% of the time doesn't happen. And that can even not just be with respect to making the lifestyle recommendations about the food, the exercise, you name it, but even in terms of medication, people just don't do things. We realize that this decision-making problem that we seem to have we call it non-compliance blaming the patient oh that patient's non-compliant that's a label that's been developed for that person who doesn't follow through putting them in a category of people who don't listen to their doctor well it's a bigger problem than that that we all impose upon ourselves ideas about what we should be doing you know ben you yourself probably say well today i'm going to do X number of squats, or I'm not going to eat such and such, whatever it is. And oftentimes we don't do what we think we should do. And there's no one excluded from this. I promise you. And we blame ourselves just as sure as the doctors blame the patients, we end up blaming themselves. And as you described earlier, truly the deck is stacked against us. So many of what goes on in our modern lives is taking us away. Rewiring our brains figuratively and literally to keep us from locking into the good decision making part of the brain, that area that we call the prefrontal cortex. It's an area that says, let's make a decision today that may be beneficial for us tomorrow, not just for me, but for others around me, for the planet. What's the outcome going to be? What are the consequences of what I choose today? If I eat the jelly donut, or I decide to fast or I decide to eat some food that's good for me. What are the consequences tomorrow in te- or in 10 years? When our decision making is impulsive, in other words, coming from an area of the brain called the amygdala, we don't care. We just do it and that's it and that's the best we can do because our brains are wired that way and it's not our fault. We don't have the hardware anymore to make better decisions. So the idea of blaming the patient, I think we need to move past that as physicians, as as healthcare providers. And the idea of blaming ourselves, I think, needs to be reassessed as well. So many people blame themselves for not being able to stick to it. There are countless books out there now, wonderful books, whether you think uh, being paleo or keto or vegan, whatever it is, that's interesting to you. You bought all the books. You signed on to the online summit and you learned everything you could. Wonderful. But if you don't follow through, it's worthless. You can buy all the books you want. You, We know this. Now that I say that, you're saying, yeah, duh, we get that. But uh, the reality is so many people buy the books, get all the information, and that's as far as it goes. So we can go on the websites and read about how this new thing might be good for us, how to target inflammation or enhance mitochondrial function, reduce the action of free radicals, whatever it is, but we got to act. And unfortunately, so much conspires against us to give us access to that part of the brain. So we have become disconnected from the good decision maker in the room. And we call this in the new book in Brainwash, we call this disconnection syndrome. We get disconnected from this prefrontal cortex that allows us to make good decisions We know that not getting enough restorative sleep severs our connection. We know that a pro-inflammatory diet severs our connection, not getting any contact with nature, not exercising, not relating to other people. All of these choices that we make in a single day threaten our ability to remain connected to that part of the brain that really is our gift as humans, our gift that allows us to conceive of a future, plan for the future that allows us to participate in something called empathy where we can see the world through another person's framework, another person's eyes, as opposed to where we end up when we sever that connection, we end up behaving from the uh, the amygdala where our decisions are short-term based, what do I want right now, other people be damned, and it fosters an us versus them mentality which you and I know is pervasive around the world right now and being fostered by the process of inflammation. So one of the central themes of brainwash is that this inflammation that, you know, you've talked about at length in the past, being central to things like diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's, heart disease, all of these chronic conditions, uh, this inflammation is front and center as it relates to keeping us from connecting to that part of the brain that we desperately need. And, you know, in the context of our Western diet being pro-inflammatory and the knowledge that this Western diet is becoming the global diet, increasing inflammation, it is then looked at through this lens of the global diet making us more us versus them, fearful and impulsive. Incredible explanation and the book does
4: such a good job of kind of clearly defining this relationship between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala that anyone who reads the book will go, okay, I get it. And it gave me such a great framework where I can make decisions now, and like, hey, is this feeding the amygdala or is this feeding the, feeding the prefrontal cortex? And That's literally how I view it every life or every day. What I want to talk about is, um, you know, some people will come into this conversation, listening to this podcast, saying, you know, Dr. Perlmutter, up until this point of my life, I know I've been very amygdala-driven. I have all of these things that have happened to me in my childhood. You know, this is my genetics. This is my environment. What would you suggest people do who have that
0: dialogue in their brain? This is just who I am. How do we start breaking that habit? Any suggestions on that? Well, I think the internal conversation needs to be, this is who I am, but who do I want to be? And the empowerment part of neuroscience is what we call neuroplasticity, that we can rewire the brain. You know, you talk to any of the leading neuroscientists, that's kind of standard discussion now that we have the opportunity to make things better. And yes, we have all had our amygdala moments. I describe one in the book where somebody was abusive to my wife and Boy, I had an amygdala moment that I luckily was able to bring the adult back in the room to rein in, or who knows what would happen. Very transparent about it. I'm we're all in this together. We're all trying to, you know, to do better. And I'd say that uh, the first part of the book is really focused on calling out all of these threats on wiring of our brains. How our digital experience is absolutely manipulating our brains into impulsive decision-making into feeling that we don't measure up and providing the quick fix for that, taking us away from meaningful use of the internet, which I think is a wonderful tool, how lack of sleep dramatically increases amygdala activity the very next morning with as much as a 60% increased level of activity in the amygdala after just one night of not restorative sleep and how long-term that can be profoundly damaging to impulsivity, even as it relates to food choices. As an example, research that we talk about in the book reveals that people who chronically don't get uh, enough sleep, that's a third of America in terms of adults, one-third of us, end up consuming about 380 more calories each day without an increase in energy expenditure. So a net increase of 380 calories when you realize that it's only 3,500 calories to make a pound of fat, that's a week, you know, a week of just uh, of increased caloric consumption. And, you know, I'm quite aware of that we've moved past the idea of a calorie in and a calorie out mentality. We could talk about that. But but all of these things in the beginning of Brainwash are, are presented so that people can have these aha moments and say, I never realized how threatening my snoring might be, or the fact that I'm on my computer at night and the blue light is threatening my ability to get a restorative night's sleep. Or that I need to maybe get a sleep study and, and get some metrics on how well I'm sleeping. That my food choices, I'm making bad food food choices, but the food choices are making bad decisions. We've always said, well I'm making bad food choices. Now we realize that the food choices we make threaten our decision ability. And that becomes a very powerful feed forward cycle. So part one is getting a handle on all of these influences and appreciating them, lovingly appreciating that's what's going on taking a deep breath, and then go on to part two, what in the heck can I do about
4: it? Yeah. So, one thing you said there that I'd love to touch on and have you explain, because you did such a great job in the book, is this idea of measuring up. We all see people on social media, everyone's got their their best foot forward, and all of a sudden, I feel like, oh, I can't keep up. And how is that driving this amygdala-based response?
0: Well, it it drives the amygdala-based response, because at the same time, we are made to feel that we don't measure up. We're not rich enough, thin enough, handsome enough. We don't have as many followers as we'd like to have we are immediately provided the remedy for that via our digital experience. Instant weight loss programs, you name it. It's right there. So it caters to this notion of making an impulsive decision. And, you know, the Dalai Lama said in a brilliant moment of understanding neuroplasticity, he's actually very much involved in neuroscience, as you may know. He said that the brain we develop reflects the life we lead. Meaning that what we do, our brains adapt and change and mold themselves through this process of neuroplasticity to become adaptable and a conduit, conduit for that type of activity. Meaning, the more that we play into this quick fix mentality and go down these rabbit holes uh, that uh, that appear suddenly on our when we're on the internet and distract us away from our task, the more we wire the brain directly to that sort of activity through the amygdala and other areas, and less away from prefrontal cortex. And, you know, recognize that one of the really primary functions of this prefrontal cortex top-down activity is that it top-down regulates these emotional responses from the amygdala. It is very much like having the adult in the room. You know, what happens when the amygdala is left to its own devices? It's the kids uh, with teenage kids and 30 of their closest friends and mom and dad left that house to them for the weekend while they went on a cruise. How's that going to play out? I submit not really that well. This is having the amygdala back under the control of these higher brain centers. We're trying to stop the disconnection. And that's this, again, disconnection syndrome that uh, we focus on in the book, which leads to other manifestations. It leads to disconnection from other people, disconnection from considering our future selves. And there are many manifestations of this. Yeah, you did a really good job in the book talking about the reward system and, you know,
4: evolutionarily, what would have actually uh, stimulated the reward system, right? So it would have been Hunting, like the seek and and I'm going to hunt, it would have been sex, it would have been connection with others, it would have been connection with nature, kind of filling us up. Never really all, like our reward system would have been very... It was a very narrow number of things stimulating our reward system. So it had to be a really sensitive system to where you got a little bit of reward. You wanted more of that because that's what kept us alive. And now we've got all of these things from food and social media and music and, and all these other things that are actually giving us that same reward system artificially. and We're losing those natural connections that we need with the things that ultimately fill us up and heal us. And that's so interesting that there was such a narrow number of things that uh, our body kind of historically evolutionarily responded to for the reward
0: system. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you could say, well, this is just an uh, example of what we call an environmental mismatch. Yeah, hey, It's really what the paleo movement is all about, trying to emulate what our lifestyles of our ancestors must have been like, mostly by looking at a paleolithic diet. But you know what? There are so many other aspects of our lives that we should think about in terms of what our ancestors were ex- exposed to. For example, You know, at nighttime, it was dark. It wasn't lit up by your computer screen or other sources of blue light. We were very social in those days, and that was very health-providing and and sustaining for us. That's a hack now into into what we think is social by being on social media. Um,
4: Today's podcast is brought to you by Optimizers. So throughout the last... Gosh, 15 years. I really think my brain is continually getting better. So if you're someone who's been listening to the podcast for a long time, since 2013, we've been doing this podcast. We're the OGs of the podcasting space. And uh, you know, I really feel as though every year that passes, my brain gets better. I was a professional bodybuilder. And even before that, I found my memory to be very, very bad. I found my my verbal recall to be very, very bad. Uh, I could literally read something and three minutes later, I forgot what I read. And now I find as though, even though I'm 42... My brain continues to get better. My memory continues to get better. My verbal fluency continues to get better. And I honestly attribute it to my practice around uh, brain optimization, my practices around brain optimization. And a big part of that, overcoming that huge problem that I had, and it was a really a big problem. I really felt very insecure about it. It felt it was a big problem for me, uh, was mushrooms. And you guys now have been a long-time fan of lion's mane mushrooms. I also take Chaga, reishi, cordyceps—so they're very, very common mushrooms. Um, And but they're they're common, but they're incredibly powerful. The the vast implications of these mushrooms is just truly tremendous. And our friends at Bioptimizers have put a product together that I absolutely love. It's collagenous, so it's collagen mixed together with mushrooms. Just an incredibly powerful and delicious, mind you snack that I usually consume either post-workout, sometimes before bed. I like taking collagen in um, often pre-workout, post-workout, or before bed will be a three typical times so I'll consume my collagen protein. Collagen has been shown pre-workout to really support in, in the regeneration of joints. So if you read the research, the research will suggest taking collagen pre-workout if your objective is maximizing for uh, joint health. You can head over to buyoptimizers.com And check out uh, the product Collagenius. Get hooked up 10% off Muscle 10 at checkout. Have an amazing day. Enjoy the show. So I'd love to shift toward the adrenal glands with stress being such a massive consideration, massive maybe concern, uh, especially in in current circumstance. Uh, I'm just curious uh, if you have a specific thought process around balancing adrenal hormones and balancing cortisol, uh, maybe walking us down the path of understanding some of those basic tests and how people, what people might be looking for when they're testing their blood and their urine, um, and maybe even there's some genetic considerations that stand out. I know it's a very broad question. Yeah.
1: Um, oh, so you touched on a lot of the things. There's different ways to test your adrenal hormones. So cortisol, also DHEA. Um, there's uh, a lot of different types of adrenal hormones. So you have your mineralocorticoids, your glucocorticoids, and then your sex steroids. I think of the major sex steroid as DHEA and the major, um, you know, like glucocorticoid as cortisol. So your cortisol, uh, it has a a circadian rhythm that is the opposite of melatonin. So a spike early in the morning, um, the easy way to think about it is it stresses you out enough because it's cortisol. So, you know, it's a little kick in the butt to get up in the morning. So some cortisol is definitely good. Um, An interesting uh, interplay between cortisol and testosterone also exists. So uh, um, even if you look at um, like interspecies interaction, a lot of times if, uh, you know, for example, if your dog can smell your baseline testosterone as higher, their cortisol level is higher because they're more stressed out. But um, so there's obviously um, interplay between adrenal steroids and gonadal steroids as well. Early in life, you go through something called adrenarchy. So um, you mentioned the edit component. People who are more likely to overproduce those enzymes, for example, NCCAH or non-classical congenital adrenal hyperplasia, uh, they're not hermaphrodites. Most of the time, they don't have fertility issues, but they tend to produce more. Those people tend to have, you know, um, facial hair earlier. Um, They kind of like signs of adrenarchy or more hormones earlier in life, well before puberty. And then later in life, a lot of people uh, have, uh, think of it as a corollary to andropause, not necessarily normal, a sign of aging, whether that's pathologic or um, normal aging, if normal aging is a thing, uh, it's kind of hard to know, but it's called, um, so you have menopause, andropause, and adrenopause. And adrenopause is the reason why if you look at uh, standard normal ranges in blood tests, the level of DHEA, it'll go from, you know, if you're 20, normal is 300 to 900 for DHEA or DHEA sulfate. If you're 90, the normal range is 20 to 100. Hmm.
4: So it's deteriorating a lot. Now, do you think that's something that is uh, innately human or is that more a result of the common um, state, we'll say, of the world, the, c- the common... You know the level of stress the level of endotoxin is just the deteriorating cellular health of the human species yeah it's probably mostly related to
1: the deteriorating cellular health of the human species so if you look at someone who has um uh, low dna pheno age which is kind of like one of the non-licensed versions of Horvath's clock, then they tend to have less nephron loss in the kidney they also have less um like uh, apoptosis they have less loss of cells in the zona glomerulosa and probably the zona fasciculata and these different zones in the adrenals that, um, go through hypoplasia over time. So you have like a relative adrenal hyperplasia often in childhood. And then in, um, as a result of cellular aging, a lot of times you have relative hypoplasia. So it, it is probably, I don't, you know, it's hard to say, is it like all, is it, a big proportion of endocrine disruptors maybe is it a big proportion of uh, inflammation and you know uh, just like transient crp spikes over time um, again it's kind of hard to say but all those things probably do play a part we do know that a lot of people even with relatively slow aging um, even with normal creatinine they still lose a very large percentage if not a majority of their nephrons as they
4: age. Interesting. So, as a family physician, what do you say to someone who walks into your office and says, "Hey, doc, I really want to optimize cellular health. I want to make sure these things don't happen."
1: Yeah. So, I address the big six first, and then I see where we have the highest yield of return. So, uh, perhaps just their diet. If they have a diet high in processed foods, I'm a fan of a whole food diet. Uh, I'm not like all the way on a carnivore, all the way on a plant based diet side. Um, they both have their positives and negatives, but, um, diet is pretty highly individualized. For example, people can have, uh, genetic polymorphism where they, um, can handle sugar better, you know, uh, unopposed sugar, unopposed by fiber and genetically, they're not as likely to develop insulin resistance. So, um, for them, they're not going to have as much inflammation due to something like that. Um, but that's not for everybody. Um, so in addition to that. A lot of people ask me specifically about metformin, which I'm happy to talk about. Some people ask me about mTOR inhibition, um, like rapamycin or sirolimus. Some people also ask me about NMN. Um, and then some people, especially ones that like listen to David Sinclair, will ask me about sirtuins.
4: Yeah, we can definitely talk about all those things, but I don't want to skip over kind of the other uh, hormones we are getting to. So we started getting towards, we went through some of the adrenals, talked about cortisol. If you, if you talk about uh, optimization of cortisol rhythms, any advice to people like other than just optimizing the big six? Uh, any advice to people, supplementally or dietarily, on best practices to optimize you know that cortisol spike in the morning and then the the kind of lull off in the evening? Anything that comes to mind there? Maybe it's yeah, you know, think things you've seen consistently in your practice that are effective in helping people reset those.
1: Yeah, um, so. Before we talk about like specific interventions, I will say that there's a lot of people who think that they have extremely high cortisol because they're stressed all the time and they've actually had cortisol burnout. So if you do something like a urinary or a salivary cortisol, Dutch test is one of them, then you'll see that they're actually very low on cortisol or they're low on cortisol in the morning and then high in the evening, as you mentioned. So for a small subset of people that can tolerate it, Uh, things like ashwagandha or emodin that can decrease cortisol can be helpful, but I only like to do it at dinner or later than that, because if you take it early in the day, then it's counterproductive. In addition to that, changing your fasting window to be, um, at a different time of the day can also help. So that's, that's a pretty big one. Diet
4: always helps. Exercise always helps as well. So, so when you say at a different time of the day, so Knowing that fasting actually technically may increase cortisol, would you suggest doing it in the morning? Versus, we also know that eating early actually sets your circadian biology so that you go to bed earlier. So, that's one of these catch points, too. So, I'm just curious how you would, would you'd kind of uh, think through that.
1: Yeah. Um, so, if you're low on cortisol, then you might consider a fasting window of, you know, 4 p.m. to, um, you know, depending on, really depending on wake, when you wake up, a few hours after you wake up. So you fast some right when you wake up, and then you also fast through the evening and basically skip dinner as well. Do you um, think people like that they, would, would think people like that would have a hard time falling asleep because of elevated cortisol in the evening? They, they might. Uh, it depends on the person, but that's more of an optimal fasting window. However, uh, the difference between what people do as their fasting window in real life um, is usually, you know, they fast until 4 p.m. They do the opposite of that and then they have a huge meal, and they might fall asleep easily, but they might not have as high quality of a sleep. So, if you're doing intermittent fasting and you're having, let's say, 75% of your calories one hour before you go to bed, that's also significantly affecting your sleep quality as well.
4: Yeah, bad news, totally. So, the thing that seems to work best for me and many of my clients, again, it's obviously individualized, but just as you say, is like eating relatively early in the day, stopping food around 3 p.m., seems to really optimize uh, circadian rhythms, energy, and sleep quality just goes through the roof. Although it is definitely something you need to kind of tweak a little bit for someone who is experiencing the inability to fall asleep or that racing mind at night. Sometimes there's some supplemental interventions there to help with uh, get helping them get to sleep and stay sleep.
1: Yeah, I think that's a wonderful fasting interval and great advice for pretty much everybody who can make that work within their lifestyle. So a lot of clients that you're seeing is probably a different patient population, fairly different than clients that I'm seeing as well.
4: Yeah, yeah possibly. Um, cool. So I'd love to talk about, you know, the, the hot topic in our world right now is hormone replacement therapy. And, uh, you know, every guy that comes into my world is like, hey, should I do this? Should I not do this? Some guys are completely against it. Some guys are completely for it. Um, yeah, I'm curious your perspective. So the first question I want to ask, even before we hear your your opinion on whether or not guys should be doing it, is um, what's your thoughts on what the ranges have done kind of over the last decades, call it three, four, five decades? Have you seen any of the research on how it shifted relative to what we'll call the median or the, or the mean now? And if you just talk to that a little bit.
1: Yeah, even different countries have different ranges. So if you look at the normal range for Greece or Turkey, or one of the countries in the, I guess, the northern part of the Mideast, the normal is something like 400 to 1,000. Don't quote me on that verbatim, but the range is significantly, statistically significantly higher than it is here. And if you do look at the ranges over time, they have gone down significantly. So there's obviously a cause of that. Um, you know, we try to test healthy people when we develop standard normal ranges, but, uh, you know, even probably two thirds of people in the United States have insulin resistance or prediabetes of some sort. In fact, about 40% of people um that did not know they had prediabetes actually had pre-diabetes, partly just because we don't screen A1C, because a lot of insurance companies don't want to screen A1C. So there's one insurance company, which I will not name, that um specifically said, we will not pay for an A1C. So do not order an A1C in your patients, even though 38% of them have prediabetes and don't know it, and it's a modifiable disease. And uh even though it's a goal of Healthy People 2030, which the government helped go by. So that's a positive public health initiative, um, which I think is excellent. Another positive public health initiative is um, them declaring obesity as a pathology, as a disease, and also saying that it is an epidemic in this country. So I kind of rabbit trailed
4: uh, a little bit from there, but uh, that, that's one way I think of it. Very cool. So let's talk about uh, hormone replacement, um, whether it be males, females, I don't know a lot about female hormones, I'll be honest. That's not something you've ever dove into. I'd love to have you speak to hormones, specifically testosterone in men and women, and specifically estrogen in men and women, and maybe some some different thoughts on optimization. Yeah, that's
1: right. Thank you. Uh, So where I was going from there
4: is when you're
1: weighing the risk and benefit of hormone replacement, whether it's testosterone in men or whether it's um, women's hormone replacement, you take into account all the different variables. And one of the variables is hypogonadal men who go on TRT have significantly less diabetes and they have less body fat, which improves their insulin resistance. So, um, if there's a listener, if there's a patient and they're in that large percentage of people who don't know that they're starting to get metabolic syndrome, then um, you would think, uh, you know, TRT, theoretically, it can cause plaque. Maybe I don't want to do it, but perhaps that could be a positive. For that individual, Um, usually a good way to. Black could be a positive, or the TRT could be a positive. TRT could be a positive because if, like, uh, TRT, you're less likely to develop diabetes. It kind of gives you the tools to improve your lifestyle. If you're hypogonadal and um, you just know that there's no chance that you're going to be able to exercise or go on a good diet, and TRT can help change that, it can change your life. It can prevent you from getting diabetes, it can actually decrease your risk of having plaque or a heart attack or a stroke. So that person might be a good candidate. There might be somebody else with um, relatively similar levels, but perhaps their level of testosterone is because they took a supplement or a substance and they're able to recover that either naturally or with the use of a medication in a short term. And um, in that case, then TRT would not be helpful. In fact, it would probably be harmful. And in my experience, almost everybody who starts TRT or HRT develop some sort of side effect, they might not know it. A lot of them are insidious or hidden, but there's so many different side effects that it seems like everybody has at least some sort of deleterious response, even if it's mild. So uh, it's you're, yeah, you're, you're weighing those two things. A lot of people start, uh, you know, they're 200 milligrams of TRT from a TRT clinic and they'll start their AI with it and they feel great, then they lose fat, and their prediabetes goes away. But um, they're on such a high dose of AI and also they're on such a high dose of testosterone. They develop um, LVH and they have uh, cardiac hypertrophy and they have an arrhythmia and they pass away.
4: Less or, ventricular hypertrophy?
1: Yeah. Yep. So maybe they've had, maybe they went on TRT and they got polycythemic. They didn't get enough follow up labs. And um, what, sorry, poly what? Polycythemia. A lot of, a lot of uh, men and also women that are on, Uh, testosterone or androgens, their hemoglobin and hematocrit spikes up very high. So a good example of this is the Swedish cycling team. And they've had a couple different instances. Um, Cyclists love to take erythropoietin, not necessarily as much testosterone, but um, think of your hematocrit as the percentage of your blood that's red blood cells. So if it's 60% or 70% of your blood is red blood cells, imagine how thick that is and how likely it is to get clogged and cause a stroke which is a blockage in the vessel
4: and causes hypoxic brain injury. So as we just continue our conversation, just talking about this reptilian brain, always kind of having the need to be satisfied. There's some thought around this reality that the world is designed that way. You know, the TVs are designed to keep you in fear. The way societies are built, it's designed to keep you in fear. So you have this unconscious need to mute the fear, you know, ultimately driving consumerism, right? If we're always in fear and anxiety and stress, your body's always going to give you these primal urges to, you know, feed, relax, overcome anxiety, maybe to take medications, not certainly be motivated to do anything productive for yourself.
2: Right. I think we've all experienced a fair amount of stress in our lives. Modern life is, is still pretty stressful. My reaction to it is like a lot of people. Uh, I don't like to go to the gym when I'm totally stressed out, but I like to sit down, watch a movie, completely veg out and uh, and eat snacks because it makes me feel better. I try not to because those urges are great in the short run, but very bad for us in the long run. And uh, consumerism, whether it's buying goods and putting them in your basement or your, or your wardrobe, if you like, uh, buying excess clothes, it's also important to realize that food is just as much consumerism and, and big multinational companies they're all about making sure that you cannot stop eating once once you start and you know the perfect mix of of fat and salt and and uh, acidity triggers that reptilian brain we love to eat it we love to also relax and sit down rather than getting on a treadmill i'm uh, sitting in a comfy chair a few feet away from the treadmill that's in my gym next door and yeah it's much easier to sit around watch movies Eat sweet and salty popcorn, but that's what's killing us because our bodies uh, physically get just as lazy. So we have these inbuilt survival networks in our body. Some of the genes that control these networks we refer to as longevity genes for the simple reason that if you turn them on, animals in the lab typically live longer. But these genes don't get turned on unless they're freaked out, unless they're needed. And what turns them on is not popcorn and it's not movies. It's getting out of the chair. It's being hungry, experiencing adversity because they've evolved to keep us alive when times are getting tough. But our lives these days are very rarely tough. So, they just uh, they sit around and conserve energy. Yeah. I often say we're
4: probably the weakest version of the human species that's ever lived. And uh, I mean, just Nothing in our life is challenging. It's designed that way, right? Everything's meant to make life easier, which is wonderful on one end. And the other end is your brain's always going to choose that, especially when it's in fear and anxiety and depression and your body's craving that comfort. And, you know, cause speaking of consumerism, it, my thought is it's it's curated from the time you're born, right? I don't, David, I don't have kids, but the second your children are born, you're told as a parent, you need to feed this child every two hours for the rest of their life or they're going to die and you're going to be a bad parent. Sure, that makes sense for the first six to 12 months of their life. But beyond that, it's certainly not necessary. But now they're in the habit of, I need to eat breakfast, I need to eat a snack, I need to have lunch, I need to have a snack, I need to have dinner, I need have snacks. And I'm consuming six times a day and just kind of perpetuating this never-ending loop of being a consumer. And that's such an interesting paradigm, right? Is, you know, we're being inbred into that so that we drive economy. And it makes sense. You don't know, want the economy to slow down. But at the same time, it's certainly not helping anybody live a healthy virile life. And, uh, you know, the other end of that is the exercise piece. And there's been some really, really interesting data put forward lately about kind of the evolutionary advantage of people who would exercise. And you know, after six weeks, it's been suggested your brain would change for long term and receive much more joy and fulfillment and ultimately happiness from exercise because there's a this whole neurochemical cascade we're very familiar with, well, obviously the endorphins and uh, an endomide being secreted that allows you to love exercise and you think you understand how that would be rewarded evolutionarily right someone who moves and walks and runs evolutionarily should be rewarded to procreate and live longer and someone who doesn't you know if you're not walking and running evolutionarily you're probably someone who should be dying you know or you're getting toward that age and i think people should start to acknowledge that when it comes to looking at longevity is the necessity of these pieces and and learning to control your conscious mind
2: yeah the, the control is the hard part because we're constantly fighting what we revert to as a default. So, for example, when you fly, what you get constantly is, do you want the nuts? Do you want the food? here? have, especially if you're in business class, that that all they want to do is give you food. And it's very hard because you're really bored out of your mind after a while. Ben, you're about to go down to Australia. You'll experience this pretty soon. It's very hard to say no thanks. And after the third time they give you a weird look, you'll give in and, and start eating it. And it's it. You've got to be fighting and constantly thinking. What do I want to achieve? What do I want to look like tomorrow? What do I want to look like a week from now? So that that helps me is to focus on goals, and that allows me to say no to the. In the simplest way in that case, David, is you know one thing I do for myself is I create rules. Right? I
4: don't eat. It's like saying I don't drink alcohol or I don't smoke. And it's, it's so much easier when you have these concrete rules with yourself. You can see, like, yeah, hey, I don't eat on, I don't eat on airplanes or I don't eat airplane food or. You know, I don't eat food, low quality food, right? If you set this this standard of I only eat organic foods, well I guess you either bring in your food or you're not eating on an airplane. Like, like listen, I'm not perfect. Sometimes there's a time where I'll grab the bag of almonds on the airplane. But you know, most often it's this, this desire to say, I only consume the highest quality foods. And if you do that, it's much easier for your you know, you're not really playing with willpower at that point. It's just who you are and what you do and and that comes down to the identity piece. So the one thing that I want to kind of wrap up is you spoke about this DNA breaks. What are the main causes that are preventable or avoidable?
2: Yeah, that's the right question. So, it's unavoidable for the most part. A lot of DNA breaks are occurring in our bodies. There's at least a trillion throughout our body every day. That's the bad news. Even if we lived at the bottom of the ocean in a lead box, we'd still have DNA breaks. But there are things you can do to minimize DNA breaks. Now, the first thing is make sure that your body is super primed for DNA repair. And I'm very much of the belief that our bodies know what they're doing, so it's far better to boost the body's natural defenses than to try and engineer around it. I guess I'm more, more of a biologist than uh, engineer that way. So again, you, know, you want to boost your DNA repair systems in the body. Raising an AD, we've shown, we had a science paper a couple of years ago showing that raising an AD improves DNA repair. Many people know that. And there are a couple of key protein families. There are the PARP proteins called PARP. Yep, you probably have heard of those. So PARP1, you definitely want to keep active. It's a DNA repair protein. And then the C2 ones again, SIRT1 and SIRT6 are the key DNA repair proteins as well. So keep your NAD levels high. That's one way. How do you avoid DNA breaks? Well, you cannot have a lot of x-rays. X-rays will definitely break your chromosomes. I wouldn't refuse an x-ray if it was for a medical reason. But in my view, some x-rays are unnecessary. You know, I think every time I go to the dentist, it seems like they want to give me another x-ray. I tend to say only do it if it's really, really necessary. That's one. Don't get a lot of CT scans unless it's for a medical reason. CT scans will also damage your DNA and break it and there are other things you can do so there are chemicals in our world that we're eating and breathing that will lead to DNA breaks plastics if you microwave them there are a whole bunch of chemicals that get released there are nitroso compounds which are in cigarettes they're in yellow dye of certain types inkjet printer uh, the yellow is a potent DNA uh, damaging agent So, these are the things to avoid as well. You know, people ask me about cell phones. I think it's fine. I haven't seen any issue with those. The body scanners that are at the airport. Yeah, I was going to mention that one. Now, I get a little bit silly when it comes to those scanners. I think scientifically, there's not a lot of reason to worry at this point. But let me qualify that statement. Those scanners used to cause DNA breaks. They've been replaced by ones that are Uh, very uh, weak millimeter scan machines. But there was a point when those scanners were presumably slightly accelerating our aging. That's that's my my view. Today, I think that there's much less of a worry. But in an abundance of caution, just in case I try to avoid going through those scanners, I get in the US, there's TSA pre. So, I try to get that uh, every time and not go through the scanners. And get a pat down if if I I feel like I can be bothered. Now, there's no proof, but here's the the caveat that it's never been tested. When people talk about DNA damage, they're worried about cancer. And of course, those scanners have been tested for their ability to mutate cells and cause cancer. But nobody's thinking the way that we've talked about today, that the epigenome is also potentially affected by radiation. Um, No one's ever put a mouse in a scanner to see what would happen the closest that has come to that is research that we've done in my lab where we've cut the DNA for a few weeks of a young mouse let the DNA heal and what we see is an acceleration of the aging clock and those mice get older by 50% and they get diseases much quicker and they go gray and they lose their hair and all that kind of stuff now of course the scanners aren't trashing the chromosome but it does give me pause for thought, which is that maybe just a little bit of DNA damage is still going to have long lasting consequences, especially if you fly as much as uh, the two of us do.
4: Right. That's what I was going to say. Even just being in the air, I'm sure, is also another consideration as far as you know, oxidative stress and, and radiation.
2: Right. Well, I like to take my NAD boosting molecule while I'm flying just to make sure that my DNA repair systems are super active during that. So, The interesting uh, anecdote I'll tell you is I I refused to go through the scan at one time and the guy that was there, he's not a scientist, but he said, oh, don't worry. It's its only as much radiation as you'll get in the air. And my thought was, why would I want to double my exposure?
4: Totally. Uh, yeah. Is there anything else you do that's kind of a daily practice as far? I mean, if, you, if you're traveling, have you have you experimented with the, with the molecular hydrogen? Uh, anything else to kind of mitigate these free radical or radiation exposures?
2: Well, mostly it's... The usual things I do daily, which is not eat a lot, so my body is is hungry in the flight. If I can help it, I take the NAD booster. Other than that, no, it's making sure I'm hydrated. And then when I land, I'll take another boost of uh, the NAD booster to reset my clock. But no, other than that, I mean, do, do you have any suggestions for? air travel how to make it more pleasant yeah
4: well, like hydrogen would be one that's been suggested to have a really great benefit i know the whole biohacking community dive do it and there's a guy named tyler Lebaron who now lives in japan who's a researcher specific to hydrogen saying it's it's one of the best ways to mitigate the oxidative stress today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at paleo valley just before i jump into the podcast i actually had a little snack i went into some grass-fed meat sticks uh, which are just phenomenal. They have many different flavors. They have um, uh, one of my favorite ones is summer sausage. They have a spicy and non-spicy and just all grass-fed, high-quality, convenient snacks. One of the challenges that many of us have as busy entrepreneurs, executives, anyone in this modern life, truly really just uh, you know finding snacks that can hold us over when it's not maybe mealtime or maybe we're in a rush to get some protein we're not sure how we're going to hit our daily protein intake. One of my favorite ways to do so, and with my kids as well, is just using a couple of grass-fed meat sticks to get uh, all of our daily protein intakes from a high-quality source you can trust, 100% grass-fed and grass-finished, and um, just love the flavors as well. You can, And they have so many other great products as well that I haven't mentioned. They've got a bone broth protein, which is phenomenal. They've got protein bars, which I love and my kids love. And these guys are huge on supporting – um, environmental restoration and animal welfare as well, which are obviously big hot topics right now in our world. Um, so ladies and gents, head over to paleovalley.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 15% off your first order. And again, for- off our food is really significant because the margins on food products is very, very small, right? Some companies have large margins they work on, some of them are small. And we know that anything that's a food product, as you can imagine in a grocery store, the margins are incredibly small. And so we really appreciate Paleo Valley uh, supporting this podcast and supporting you and your ability to ultimately um, get the best quality products, put the best quality products into your body. Well, you keep bringing that term up, the soul. And I want you to to, um, define that. Another thing I want you to go down the path of is the idea of finding meaning, because I think those things really tie in nicely together. And and I've heard you on another podcast talking about most people can't find meaning in their life. Yeah. And I think if you can't find meaning, it's very hard to become conscious and, and, you know, find your soul. So I'll have to just, you know, enlighten us on that, because that's something you talk about a lot.
3: Well, there's a lot of ways of looking at the soul. Having studied hundreds of books on it, right next to you here is over 120 books on God and probably another 100-plus books on the soul. I've studied world religion. I've studied philosophy of religion. Uh, I've studied metaphysics. I've spent time with monks and and a lot, right? So, And then I work with myself, actually, and, and I'll tell you one day— and this is, you know, after years and years of studying, I, I started getting irritated because as you will have experienced yourself, whenever you study a topic like something like the soul or diet, you can't get anybody to agree on anything. Right. The vegans say that's the way. The meat eaters say that's the way. I mean, everyone thinks that way. And you can find someone with science to back every opinion. So, what do right. you do and when And everybody... it's the
4: most convincing author. Yes, that, yeah.
3: right. And so, you know, you got the barry sears thing you got the ornish thing you know so you know these guys are going at each other tooth and nail and half these diet experts are overweight and unhealthy and look right. like and shit, most of them are or full of shit. look like skinny as a rail like they came out of a concentration camp <laughs> yeah. right and i'm like yeah. that's not exactly how you would have looked in nature right um so what happened was i was like doing all this research into the soul And I wish I I could have just asked the monks, but this was like I was much older by this time, and I didn't want to go down to the SRF temple and ask the monks because I would have just gotten there their version of it mm-hmm. but the point i'm making is i couldn't find any consensus on what the soul was there was just radical differences of an opinion and it ranged very very widely from very intellectual concepts to very elusive concepts and 99 ha- percent of the books in the world and the soul don't tell you anything about how to get in touch with your own soul right which i thought was just silly so i'm sitting in my sauna meditating and this is you know maybe 18 years ago or something And I said, all right, I'm going to do a simple test. If the soul is what I think it is, it's consciousness. Uh, My conclusion after all my research was that only God can give a soul. If the soul is consciousness, then only God can give life. You can't be alive without a soul. Now I'm having to step, skip, you know, this is, you know, years of training. I give people to understand this stuff in its depth, but most people can follow the logic of it. So I'm sitting in my sauna and, I, and, and I, I've been meditating since I was a kid. And so I know how to quiet my mind. And I said, okay, I have a simple question. If there's a soul inside of me, then you should be able to know my thoughts and hear me and feel me because you are me. So I said, I'm going to quiet my mind so I know that I'm not doing the talking. And then I asked the question, dear soul, if you were here, give me some indicator that you are listening to me. And I completely relaxed and all of a sudden the energy in my body surged up. I'm sitting in my sauna and meditation and I said, if you're here and you can hear me, show me some way to know you're here. And I had this huge heart opening surge of energy that rose up through my body like I was standing on one of those big vents in New York where the building blows its exhaust and it'll blow a woman's skirt up, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, I don't even know how to do that to myself. Right. And so I said, dear soul, if that was you do that three times in a row and I'm like, whoa. And so I said, wow, Then I said, have you been with me answering my prayers and my deep questions and guiding me all along? Yes, I have. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. This is mind boggling. So then I said, dear soul, show me how I know what it feels like when you're saying no to me, such as if I ask you, should I do this or not? And then my energy just sunk and it felt just like you feel when you know someone's telling you a lie. Right. You know that broken, crooked, empty feeling?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Like, when, especially when someone you love is lying to you. And I went, wow, I've had that feeling many times. And I've had that feeling many times when I was wondering, what procedure should I use to maybe mobilize this temporomandibular joint? Or what's the best thing to do for this patient? Should I send them for surgery and I'd have that broken feeling inside? No, don't. And I inst- instinctively sense... No, there's something I'm missing and I would hold out and keep searching. Inevitably, I'd figure out how to save from surgery. So I took that basically yes, no language, which is really what dousing is. And I had experience at dousing. I used to work on an exploration and water well drilling crew for a year and I became the dowser and never missed a single well. And so I knew what it felt like to feel energy moving because I had doused many wells successfully. And so then I just started working with that. And asking questions that could be answered with a yes or a no. And that grew. And then when I met Master Fong Ha in, I think, 2000 and asked him to guide me because I was writing my book, How to Eat, Move and Be Healthy. And I found that people that were doing Tai Chi and Qigong were still trapped in their head and they couldn't relax inside So I knew that part of my path was to develop a simple system of what I called working in to counterbalance all the externalization of the self or the ego, all this go get them, do go, go ass kicking, which you've lived very thoroughly. And so I knew from all the burnt out athletes, I had to show them how to practice some of the things the monks had taught me. But I also wanted to understand Tai Chi and Qigong much more deeply. So I took a training program in medical Qigong, practiced it religiously for a couple of years, and got great results with it. But it was still, I still felt I needed the credibility of a bona fide master. So I'm studying one of my books up here. Uh, I believe it's that two volume series, Warriors of Inner Stillness. And it had pictures of the lineage of the ancient Chinese and Uh, Taoist and uh, Qigong and Tai Chi masters. And I'm reading about all these masters. And I get to the most recent one, Master Fong Ha, who's still alive and lives in San Francisco. And I had that lightning experience like, aha, I have got to track him down. So I had one of my researchers figure out how to get a hold of him. I called him up, told him I was writing this book. Would he be willing to work with me? I'd be happy to pay me. He says, I'll do it for free. I flew to San Francisco. Long story made short. He put me through uh, enough training that I reached a, sen- a sense of inner mastery where I knew what, uh, the, what I was trying to teach. And I did multiple gongs, which are 100-day practices. My first one was stand like a tree. I'll tell you a funny story. So I fly to meet him. He meets me at the door. And the first thought I had was, this guy just looks like Yoda. He's about five foot one or two, big, broad shoulders like yours, big, strong looking arms. At that time, he was he's about probably about eighty now, but you know this is like around two thousand, so he, maybe he was sixty something. But he still looked like a you wouldn't want to tumble with this right. guy. He looked like a real strong MMA fighter or wrestler, right? And my first thought was, this guy looks just like Yoda. So, I walk in his door. The first thing I see is a poster of Yoda with his lightsaber on the wall. I'm like, obviously, He's someone else is yeah, told exactly. So that. So, he takes me out behind his house. And he says, okay, stand like this. He says, I'm going to teach you Zanzung, which means stand like a tree. So, he gets me in the right posture. And he says, now, you just stand there. And showed me how to breathe diaphragmatically through my belly. He goes, I'll be back in a little while. I'm standing out there standing like a tree and there's three different hand positions. And after a while, your arms begin to shake and your body shakes and then you move. And I'm like, okay, you know, I used to be a paratrooper. I've played these games where you got (laughs) to hold your weapon out of you until you're dead and people are dropping like flies. And so I said, I can play this game. Well, this went on finally. I didn't know how long it had been, but I noticed the sun had moved noticeably in his backyard. He comes out. He goes, oh, you did very good. He says, most people only last two or three minutes before they can't hold the posture or they just give up. I said, how long have I been out? He said, over an hour. Very good. That was so. my first assignment was to stand like a tree an hour a day for a hundred days. If I missed a single day, I had to start over again.
4: You can't do anything during that time.
3: You stand like a tree and you calm your mind and you breathe through your belly and you learn to feel the energy moving through you. your eyes have to be
4: open or closed? uh,
3: Ideally closed. Closed. So you bring your consciousness inside. Sure. The eyes actually consume a huge amount of energy. So Mm -hmm. your eyes are providing about 80 they use, I don't remember the exact figure but whenever your eyes are open you're using a lot of the brain power to feed the eye system. Yep. And you're consciousness is directed outwards so a lot of the inner arts are done with the eyes closed so i went through a series of gongs and it opened up my clairvoyance it opened up my hundred days oh yeah hell yeah Yeah. man i was raised on a farm where you don't miss out or you don't get screw around and when i go to a master i'm not gonna fuck around right like this guy devoted his time to me i'm gonna devote my time to him so i did many gongs under his guidance and i had massive gains in many many ways and abilities that i
4: so a gong is 100 days a hundred days gongs a hundred what other ones did days. you do uh,
3: i did stand like a tree then i did the tai chi ruler which is a technique he taught me which i teach my students these days have been for years it's a ruler that connects the heart meridians together so you cycle your breathing while you're making a circle so you you start with your arms out and if you imagine you're Imagine you've got a giant, like a Swiss ball, in front of your face. As you inhale, your arms go up in the air, and you make the top half of the circle. And as it passes your nose, you begin exhaling through your nose, and then you move the bottom half. And you're moving like you're doing a, a dynamic lunge, but without going anywhere. So your whole body's making circles. You're going for an hour. Yeah, and <laughs> that's but that's it's terrible, a, but no it's actually you know you 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 feet don't move no well you if you want to switch legs you can't you put you switch front leg to you you know whenever you get tired you switch legs okay and and for a lot of people it's very hard because you're very deconditioned but so what you're doing is you're actually and and i did research and studied heart mass research and what i found it was doing it was in training your biological oscillators your Mm -hmm. brain your heart and your Uh, the peristalsis in your digestive tract are all coming online. So they're actually, you're basically harmonizing your internal systems and your ego goes flat. So now you're basically totally in tune with your unconscious, your subconscious and your conscious. They're all, you know, like dancers moving beautifully. And it had massive effects on my ability to read people, to have precognitive awareness of what was wrong with people long list of stuff it, just like it opened me up wide you know blew my mind actually and i've had many students go through this it's very much what happens to people in shamanic healing ceremonies except those are very short-term experiences these are very sustainable experiences so i basically studied his system and then I took the knowledge I had from all these studies and said okay I've got to merge these into practical simple applications that anybody can use which became the work in exercises or the zone exercises in my book how to eat Move, and be healthy I show a picture of master fong and give him tribute for helping me develop all this stuff so I balanced the working out and working in but I kind of lost where we were going but to synthesize the initial question was I now had the ability to teach my students, when you analyze a client, you have to look at their life from four key perspectives. What are they doing that's happy making? How are they moving their body? How are they managing their diet and the quality of their diet and the need for individuality? And how are they managing rest? And I show my students, there's three types of rest, active, passive, and total. And if you don't understand how to use those three types of rest, it'll bite you in the ass especially if you're an athlete and then i showed them for as the students go through their training that these four doctors are not only physical there's emotional what are you putting energy to and moving emotionally dr happy i.e is this emotion i'm having really congruent with my dream or is it a habit i'm in or is it the byproduct of bad diet because it could be a biochemically induced emotion Then, Dr. Movement, you have to look at the movement of your emotions and if it's productive or, again, is it destructive to you? Most people, there's a great book behind you, Destructive Emotions by the Dalai Dalai Lama and Daniel Goldman, and there's lots of research in there on destructive emotions and how that's a major problem. Most people think themselves into illness and disease. So then we have to look at the emotional element of diet and is that stabilizing our emotions because that's the biochemical aspect of emotions then we have to look at the emotional response to rest then we have to look at the mental element of dr happy there's things that like sex might make you happy but it might not feed your mind right uh sex might give you temporary emotional gratification but you also find yourself having challenges with the person you're having sex with so most people's Sexual intimacy and emotional stability are kind of like a choppy ocean, right? So I showed that we have to look at the mental component and what are we moving with our mind? How are we exercising our mind? What are we doing to grow ourselves mentally? What are we doing to feed our mind? You're sitting in my kitchen of mental stimuli right here, right? You're surrounded by thousands of amazing books, by amazing people. And so, I realize that I feel good when I'm growing my mind in ways that ultimately help me help myself and help other people.
4: Humans ultimately crave growth, right?
3: Yes. And so, then what do we, how do we look at Dr. Quiet? Because ultimately, if you don't get enough rest, your mind burns out. So you look at all the blunders in medicine from medical students being pushed into exhaustion and doctors operating on the wrong organs and the wrong levels of the spine. And this happens all the time. We look at what happens when people are driving and they're tired and policemen that are tired. And the list is all the, you know, I've studied work related injuries and sleep deprivation is one of the highest reasons for industrial injuries. People cut their fingers off and crash forklifts and whatever. So I'm like, okay, what happens to your mental satiation if your body is not arrested and your emotions aren't rested and your mind isn't rested? So what I showed my students is that the four-doctor system is a physical, emotional, and a mental system. And I show a lot of people that have problems with their weight being underweight or overweight are often having problems because they're feeding only the physical elements of their body. Look at all the people that can't lose weight. But they're actually using food to try to feed an emotional emptiness or a mental emptiness, and they haven't learned how to distinguish
4: a physical from an emotional. So can we talk about that? Because I think you're absolutely right. Anyone comes to me, there's always an emotional gap. Yeah. So what types of so the question that we were kind of going down was how do you start to access your soul and understand the feelings of, of interpreting what your soul is telling you? Yes. And then that ties in very, very nicely with how do we begin to um, identify some strategies to deal with emotional stress and, tra- and trauma, et cetera, that's building yeah. up in our life.
3: Well, so our, is your question, how do you develop the strategies? How do you distinguish well, emotional eating from physical? So, so I
4: think the first question is, uh, that we were starting to answer was, how do we begin to um, interpret our soul, what our soul is telling us? Because I think that's a little bit obscure for people, right? You can be talking about the soul. Like, My soul is telling me this. How do I know what my soul is telling me? Do you have a Do you have a um, a meditation? Do you have well, I, I,
3: like I, I just gave you a very quick introduction to it, but in my primal pattern eating online course, I take you deeper. Okay, but the reason I have to do advanced training with people, and it often takes at least a year in therapy with me, is because what's in the way of connecting to your soul is your ego and your shadow right. and your programming. So the concepts aren't hard to work. As In fact, I rarely have somebody that can't get a reaction from their soul and they go, oh my God, there it is. But what's hard is when their soul says don't eat the Oreo cookies and their ego or their shadow or the broken child in them associates the Oreo cookies with the times in their childhood where they were happy and nobody was being violent. Mm-hmm. As an example. Emotions. So, you know, the journey really you you know this is what spirituality really is it's this process of healing yourself so that you learn how to become your own mother your own father and you nurture the broken child or in in most people's case there's many children in native american indian philosophy and I'm a medicine man and spirit guide as you know that's what's called soul loss so when i work with people I identify all the physical, emotional, and mental traumas through a series of evaluative procedures. And also, I can look into a person's field and identify them if they can't. That's part of what I've learned to do through all my training and spiritual practices, which is also I'm clairvoyant, so I have that benefit. But ultimately, what we have to do and and what my higher-level practitioners are taught to do is help identify these points of trauma where a part of us had
4: to depart for its own survival. There's a lot of people online, I'm sure you guys are being exposed to, talking about the absence of masculinity, right? We're talking about the, the absence of male role models. And while that is true in many instances or many aspects, I also want to bring to our awareness that this is, without a shadow of a doubt, the most complex time in the history of humanity for people to be alive and for men to have to navigate the manipulation of our urges of our of our primal desires right there's someone trying to steal your attention to so that you can spend your money on food drugs alcohol sex social media every one of your urges has been identified by science and neuroscience And is being exploited by someone trying to pull your attention and and your energy and ultimately your money so they can control you and what you spend your money on, what you do. And I want to call to your awareness that by necessity, you are the strongest population of men in the history of men in as much as you have to, by necessity, control your urges. Right? There's never in, in the history of time has there been cell phones since we're... Young, right? It's our generation that's the first. Pornography, unlimited fast food, unlimited exposure to to women, right? So now we have to learn to be the strongest men of all time. And I think this is a call to arms for our generation to say, you know, we're getting shit on us being like, oh, we're not as masculine as our dads or our granddad's bullshit. Like they just had way less temptation than we do. And we're learning to navigate these things for the first time. And so I think we should take responsibility and say, yeah, I'm aware of all these things. I'm aware I'm being challenged, and therefore, I'm going to learn about it. And therefore, I'm going to be fighting the good fight to, to learn to control my senses, to learn to control my urges. And I'm not only going to learn that for me, but I'm going to learn it for my future descendants, right? My, my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, so that I can pass that wisdom on to them. Someone out there is trying to steal your attention. Someone out there is trying to steal your money. Someone out there is trying to steal your children, ultimately, right? Literally and figuratively. I think this is a big, big part of our mission at, at Muscle Intelligence. And, and I think as, as a community, in as much as knowing that your greatest opportunity to explore your character, who you are, happens in your deepest struggles, and your deepest challenges, right? So many of you experience challenges in life and how you cope with those challenges is an expression of your character, right? How you deal with those challenges. i don't say cope, it's not the right word, but how you deal with those challenges is the expression of who you are at your soul, right? Who who you are at your core. So I also want to acknowledge that you are not what you do, right? So I can separate what I do from who I am. And I also want to acknowledge that how you show up in our circumstances is a reflection of the level of development you've, you've developed in your life, you've come to in your life. Right. So as we all embark on the next 10, 30, 20, next 10, 20, 30 years, realize that every single day is not a necessarily an opportunity to, to hit, hit a PR or a PB or win a gold medal. It's simply an opportunity, a daily opportunity to improve who we are so that I can show up more effectively tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So that five years, 10 years and 20 years down the line, I've developed myself into the man that I want to be. So if we start looking at the different areas of life, that we want to optimize for, right? So I certainly want to optimize for my physical capabilities, right? I want to optimize my physical capabilities. I definitely want to optimize my mental capabilities, right? Absolutely. I certainly want to op- optimize my ability to communicate in the language that I choose. So if it's en- if the English language, you better learn to communicate in that language. I want to learn to optimize my relationships. I want to learn to optimize my financial capability, right? And you go down the list of things that you're that are important to you. And here's what I suggest you do. You decide how you want to show up at your peak, at at the absolute best you can in that area, right? And and you create a a vision, you create a clear defined end state in that area. So I want to say, like, am I showing up at my absolute peak physically? Am I showing am, am I expressing everything I possibly can physically? And if I'm not, what should I be doing on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis to move toward that? And so, and you go through all the different areas. You go in my relationships and my ability to communicate and my finances and my mental capabilities. Am I showing up at my highest and best in those areas? And that's your job to define what you want that to look like. So realize we all have a certain physical and mental capability in life. We all have a genetic limit. None of us are anywhere near it, physically or mentally. None of us are anywhere near it. But here's what I suggest. At some point in your life, explore the limits of what you are and what, who you are, what you're capable of, and the man that you are. Explore it in some area. Why? Because if you don't, you're going to leave with something left inside, right? You're going to leave with the absence of fulfillment. We all must explore the limits of what we're capable of. So I think what we're here to do as a community is to hold each other accountable to expressing the greatness within you in the realm of the physical body. That's it. And what you'll do there is you'll know that if you can express the greatness within you in, in, in a progressive way, you're not going to do this in three months. You're not going to do it in six months. It's a five, 10-year journey, right? But every day is a stepping stone. Every day is a, is a step up the mountain. And as long as you're aware of that every day is a, is a progression, not necessarily an end state, you will move closer and closer. I think a lot of us put a lot of psychological trauma, a lot of psychological challenge to ourselves. Saying like, I didn't do my best today. I'm a failure. I, I didn't do my I didn't do well. I could have done better. Man, when you put the new time horizon on, it and you go, what am I going to be in ten years? That changes it completely. So when I started bodybuilding, I was 15 years old, and my time horizon, which is crazy. I don't know how I did this, but I put a 15. No, actually, sorry, I put a 19 year time horizon on myself when I started bodybuilding. I was like, this is I want to be this when I'm 35, and and nobody ever told me this before. But that was my how I how I was able to progress. That's, I think, and not, not that I want to come back to my example, but when you put a time horizon on it, that's way off in the distance. Let's say we set a 20-year time horizon. We get, Who am I going to be in 2042? And so for me, I'm going to be 61 years old. What am I going to do when I'm 61? Who am I going to be? How am I going to show up? What are my finances? Where am I living? How do I look? How do I feel? What do people say about me in my community? That completely changes what I'm doing now as far as the sense of urgency because we put so much pressure on ourselves. To do things now, and we make stupid decisions based on now, right? I got to do this now. I got to get this done. I want to have all these things, and we feel overwhelmed and anxious. And we do nothing because we're, we're, we are just too, have too much urgency. Urgency is is useful when put into context, right? I can get a lot done in a week or a month or a year, but as long as it's moving me in the right direction. So, guys and girls what I suggest you do today, maybe this week, this is what I call an examined life, right? Living an examined life. So I look at all those different areas and I go, okay, which of these areas am I doing well? Which of my areas am I not doing well? And be completely honest with yourself, right? And that's the hard part because the honesty sometimes hurts, right? And sometimes finding someone who can be honest with you, having an accountability partner, an accountability team, so that you know someone's going to call you on your bullshit. Like you need someone who's completely honest with you, Say, hey, man, you, you're not showing up in that area the way you want to be or the way you could be. And look at all the areas of the domains of your life that are relevant to you and say, what would it look like if I actually performed at my absolute peak, my absolute peak in one of these areas or all, of them? even if you don't hit it, right? Even if you don't get your absolute peak, the process and the desire to achieve it, that is the goal. There's, the goal isn't achieving it because you simply never will. It's always a moving target. It's the idea and the concept of moving toward who you are in your soul and just exploring the boundaries that we create in our minds. We all create these walls. Like, this is, what I, this is who I am. This is what I'm capable of. Wipe it all clear and say, forget it. It's not true. It's not true. We can do anything we want to do. And I think one of the reasons that I said, what I believe, one of the reasons I'm on this planet is because I believe you're capable of more than you believe you're capable of. And that's what I do as a coach. It's like, I'll pull things out of you. You didn't know what you were capable of. I'll make you uncomfortable by calling you on your bullshit. Right. Not everyone likes that, but that's what we need. Some people aid me for that. Some people love me for that. It's definitely not for everybody. Because if you, if you want to ultimately move toward a life of fulfillment and a life of purpose, you must live life on purpose, right? So everyone says, I want purpose in my life. What does that mean? Purpose-driven life. I'm moving towards something on purpose. How do you know where to go? You don't in the beginning. You don't. But you you pay attention to the small things and you do them intentionally. And what starts to reveal itself is like, oh, if I do these little things well, purpose starts to reveal itself because opportunities come up and doors start to open. You go, what do I want to do? I get to choose all of the opportunities. I get to choose my community. I get to choose who I'm with. I can choose where I go and where where I spend my time and how I spend my money. That becomes purposeful. Nobody starts with a purpose, right? Very few people start with a purpose. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode.